Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. I got out of bed and promptly fell on the floor. I just, I just had no balance whatsoever. That instant of feeling really, really dizzy and the world spinning around you, that's, that's how it felt for me. So I couldn't get up off the ground. All I could do was crawl. And a first responder comes out and says, oh, I think he's got labyrinthitis, which is an infection of the inner, inner ear, because I could talk okay. I was quite cognizant. And I just had this ridiculous vertigo, just everything spinning around. And, and, and it was like a lead weight was attached to my head pulling me to the left along, along with a magnet it was it was bizarre I remember getting there but that's pretty much it and I didn't know it at the time but eventually when I came round it was five days later and I'm in the neurosurgery ward because I've had six hours of brain surgery to save my life basically what had happened I'd had a stroke in my cerebellum which is the bit at the back of the brain and it had caused the back of my brain to swell up against the back of my skull and this had prevented the fluid the cerebrospinal fluid which which we generate all the time every one of us but it normally drains away naturally and because of the swelling of my brain it was preventing most of the CSF from leaving my brain Hello, I'm Mark Goodyear. Welcome to Stroke Stories, the podcast that seeks out and hears from stroke survivors. A cerebellar stroke is a rare kind of stroke where the blood supply to the cerebellum is interrupted. Cerebellar strokes can be harder to diagnose because of the non-specific nature of the symptoms, which can include dizziness, nausea, headaches and double vision. In this episode, we hear from Andy Dovey from Southern Scotland, who suffered a stroke at the age of 55. At the time, I was earning my living as a professional musician. I was a drummer, basically earning my money by either teaching or playing. So I was teaching in a few schools, teaching in my own private studio at home and playing in bands. I'd never had any health issues. The longest I think I'd ever been off work was probably, you know, a couple of weeks with a bad back couple of weeks with food poisoning, that, you know, that, that type of thing. It's about, I suppose, about 5.30 one morning, and uh, I was woken up by a large bang. At least that's, that's what I thought I'd heard was a large bang. I, I assumed outside a gate was blowing or, you know, banged in the wind or something like that. I, I really didn't know. Just a large bang. So I sat bolt upright in bed and would then realised, oh, I can't, I can't hear Armageddon outside any longer. I must have imagined it. And just felt a bit nauseous and flopped back down on the uh, on the pillow, and I felt more nauseous. and thought, oh, I, I need I need to get to the bathroom. I need I need to go to the toilet. So uh, I got out of bed and promptly fell on the floor. I just I just had no 
balance whatsoever. That instant of feeling really, really dizzy and the world spinning around you, that's, that's how it felt for me. So I couldn't get up off the ground. All I could do was crawl. And I, my sort of thrashing around on the floor between the bed and the radiator had woken my wife up. And she's saying to me, are you okay? I said, yeah, I just, I don't feel very well. I, I need to get to the bathroom, but I can't stand up for some reason. So I managed to drag myself to the bathroom on my hands and knees. I could hardly lift my head up. It was sort of hanging down in front of me. And I kept going to the left. So no matter how much I tried to go directly in front of me, I kept going to the left. So I was crawling on hands and knees, banging into the dressing table and the door frame and eventually made it to the bathroom and ended up kneeling over the toilet bowl, retching. Now, my dad had a heart attack aged 54. I'm 55 at this time. Uh, and when, when he had his heart attack, he was 54. I was 16 and I saw my dad die. And the last time I saw my dad alive, was he was kneeling over a toilet bowl, retching. So I'm now basically the same age as my dad, kneeling over a toilet bowl, retching, thinking, I'm having a heart attack. This is it. I'm going to die. I'm going to go exactly the same way my dad went. How bizarre is that? Because I had had no idea what was going on. I didn't know what a stroke was. I'd heard the word. I thought it was something to do with kind of like a, a mild heart attack or something. I had no idea it was a brain injury. And there I am, kneeling over the toilet bowl, retching. So my wife by this stage has called 999 and a first responder comes out and says, oh, I think he's got labyrinthitis, which is an infection of the inner inner ear because I could talk okay. I was quite cognizant and I just had this ridiculous vertigo. Just everything was spinning around and and, and it was like a lead weight was attached to my head, pulling me to the left along along with a magnet. It It was bizarre. So the first responder went. By this stage, I'd, I'd sort of just collapsed into a heap onto the floor. So I'm lying on the floor and the paramedics arrive a few minutes later and they say, what do you think's wrong? I think, oh, I think I'm having a heart attack, you know. So they did an ECG and that was fine. That was normal. No, you're not having a heart attack. We think it's labyrinthitis. They gave me an injection for uh, anti-nausea medication to make the, na- make the nausea go away and cleared off. And I went back to bed. About nine o'clock, I was no better. Obviously, my wife phoned the, the doctor's surgery. They prescribed some more anti-nausea medication and said, if he's no better by lunchtime, we'll come out. So my wife went and cashed in the prescription, came back. I took some more meds. No better. Doctor came out at lunchtime, did a few tests, which the paramedics hadn't done. And he said to me, touch the end of your nose with your right hand, with, you know, with the, with the index finger of your right hand, which I did. He said, then do it with your left hand. And I brought my left arm up and it flew back and nearly hit me in the face and it hit the pillow behind my head. And he said to me, I think you've had a stroke. So he called 999 again and an ambulance blue lighted me to my nearest hospital, which was the John Radcliffe Hospital in Oxford. And I remember getting there, but that's pretty much it. And I didn't know it at the time, but eventually when I came round, it was five days later. And I'm in the neurosurgery ward because I've had six hours of brain surgery to save my life. And what had what had happened in that five days was that I'd spent two days on the stroke ward, where apparently, according to my wife, I was chatting away to people, and the doctors would come and see me and say, "Oh, you know, he's, he's doing okay." And then they would go, and I would just slump. My wife had to have word and said, "Look." You know, he's a performer. He's a musician. This is what he does. He is performing for you. He's actually worse. And they didn't believe her. 
And eventually, after a couple of days of this, she persuaded one of the doctors who was a lady consultant that actually something wasn't right with me. And she said, oh, you know, we've been told to listen to the families of the patients because they know the patients best. And she, the lady consultant, actually wheeled me down, apparently, for an MRI. I had an MRI and they said, oh, we need to do brain surgery. He's, he's got hydrocephalus. Andy was in a critical condition. Basically, what had happened, I'd had a stroke in my cerebellum, which is the bit at the back of the brain. And it had caused the back of my brain to swell up against the back of my skull. And this had prevented the fluid, the cerebrospinal fluid, which, which we generate all the time, every one of us. But it normally drains away naturally. And because of the swelling of my brain, it was preventing most of the CSF from leaving my brain. But I'm still producing it. So basically what's happening is it, this water fluid, cerebrospinal fluid coming into the brain, is getting trapped between the brain and the skull and slowly crushing. The pressure is just slowly building up and slowly crushing the brain. So first I had to have a transfusion because they'd been filling me up with aspirin and <laughs> to prevent another clot. Of course, now I'm going to have six hours of surgery and I could, I could bleed out. <laughs> so that was it, six hours of brain surgery to basically drill holes in my skull to release the fluid and take a piece of the skull out of the back of my head, which is still not there, in order to give the brain some room to swell into so that hopefully when the swelling went down, the uh, CSF would just drain out normally, which it did. Luckily, they said, if it, if it doesn't work, we'll need to put in a stent. Basically, it's like a piece of guttering that runs from the back of your head all the way down your insides and, and to, to allow the fluid to drain out. So I've got five missing days. And I, even, even now, I, I still will chat to my wife or, or my two sons and they'll say, oh, do you remember when such and such? No. Thought, when, when did this happen then? Was this when I was in... The stroke, no, this is when you were in ICU after the operation. It's like, oh, okay. So even now I'm still piecing bits of this five missing days together. So I ended up spending about three weeks, I think, in hospital, in the neurosurgery ward, connected to tubes, all the usual stuff, then ended back on the stroke ward where all the nurses are going, oh, Mr. Dover, you're back. How nice to see you. It's like, who are you? <laughs> I've got no idea who these people were. But I spent two days there, so they all, they all knew me. Apparently, cerebellar strokes are fairly rare. There's only about 2% of strokes are cerebellar strokes, which is why they were struggling with me appearing to be okay, apart from my balance, why they were struggling to diagnose me and why my wife was having to nag at them about having a, having a scan. But other than that, no particular cause. My personal theory is stress. I've, I've realised a lot of the work I've done with the psychologist is that I am actually an anxious person but pre-stroke, I bopped it all up. So I kept, I kept a lid on it. I think that's learned behaviour from seeing my dad die when I was 16. And I never cried. And I just kept it all bottled up. And we never spoke about it as a family. And I think that became my kind of default position when I was stressed about anything. I wouldn't talk about it. I'd bottle it all up and keep it, keep it in, as it were. And I, I don't think that helped. I think over time, that just, you know, wasn't a good holistic state of mind to be in but other than the fact it was a clot in my cerebellum that's that's the only diagnosis coming up on stroke stories andy talks about neuro fatigue you have this heavy head you have this brain fog it's a bit like mentally trying to swim through treacle everything is an effort noises can be a problem even a quiet noise can just be 
unbearable and it's just very, very debilitating. And what family members can do to help their loved ones. For relatives, for family members, for, for, for loved ones of stroke survivors, it's about do as much research as you can into what stroke is, except that stroke is, is a brain injury. And that because our brains do everything for us, that means that your loved one could have physical issues, they could have emotional issues, they could have mental issues, they could have all three. Let's hear how Andy began his road to recovery. They were going to send me to a rehab centre in Abingdon, but I didn't want to go. I had no idea of the severity of what had happened. I'm in hospital and I'm thinking, I need to get out of here because I want to, I need to work, I need to get some money, I need to earn. And I found that I couldn't pull up the bed sheet with my, with my left hand. I just had no grip. I had no tactileness, if there's such a word, with my left hand. And I'm thinking, how the hell am I going to hold a drumstick? How the hell am I going to teach kids how to play? How am I going to play myself? I can't, if I can't pull up a bed sheet, how the hell am I going to grip a drum? How am I going to earn money? What, you know, that was my main mental preoccupation was getting out I'd only had a bit of surgery, right? You can get over a bit. So I had no idea of the magnitude of the thing. To my mind, I've just been in hospital. I've had a bit of a, you know, like a broken finger or something. And I need a few weeks not, and then I'll be back to normal. I had no idea what had happened. So they wanted to send me to a rehab centre and I said no. So luckily, Oxford is, is pretty well equipped. There's a place called the OCE, the Oxford Centre for Enablement, which is a big rehab facility. So I, I became a day patient there where I had weekly physio, occupational therapy, and ultimately neuropsychology, which was fantastic. The psychologist was, 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 was fantastic. And that was it. And then once, I, I suppose, I was there on and off for six, eight months for the physical stuff, a bit longer for the, for the mental stuff, because that started a bit later. But I suppose it was about a year. I'm still not back at work. I haven't been able to return to work. My balance is obviously better than it was nine years ago, but it's not brilliant i can only walk short distances with a with a walking stick so my, my mobility is not good at all i get very very bad neuro fatigue my capacity mentally starts off okay but it it rapidly declines and when my brain starts to get tired it just starts to shut down as as i know many people suffer from as well so that that and my Balance and limited physical mobility are my, are my main two issues. Prior to experiencing all this, I thought fatigue and tiredness were the same thing. I thought they were synonyms, but they're not. The way I describe neurofatigue to people, it's like the worst hangover you've ever had, but it's 24-7 and it might be there for days. It might be there for weeks. And so you have this heavy head. You have this brain fog. It's a bit like mentally trying to swim through treacle. Everything is an effort. Noises can be a problem. Even a quiet noise can just be unbearable. And it's just very, very debilitating. And there's nothing you can do about it. I, I see lots of stuff on stroke survivors websites about oh, what can i uh, facebook pages and stuff what what can i do about fatigue is there any meds for it and can i do i need to change my diet and i've tried everything and the reality is it, it it's the fact that stroke is a brain injury 
and you have brain damage. And depending upon how much brain damage you have and where that brain damage is, you might have mild fatigue, you might have major fatigue. It's just luck of the draw. But it, it it's really debilitating. And people say things like, oh, just go and have a lie down for a minute, mate. You'll be fine. It's like, <laughs> you don't understand. Lying down for a minute does not do anything. Lying down for 10 minutes, two days might not do anything. It's just, it, it, it's awful. It, it, it really is. Because you don't know when it's going to happen. So last year, my our youngest son got married. We live in Scotland now. They live down south. So it meant a big trip down south and it meant staying in a hotel and all this kind of stuff. So I had to plan this like a military operation because I, I said to my wife, okay, getting down there is going to take a lot out of me. I'll need two days to get over it before we can think about going to the wedding. Then I'll need two days to get over that before I can think about getting in the car again and cut a new driving me back. So it ended up being a week away. And uh, in that week, I lost half a stone in weight just because of the effort to try and do everything and get through everything. And then probably for the next three or four weeks after we got back, I was I was incommunicado. I couldn't really do anything because I'm now hit with a massive bout of fatigue that just took me weeks to get over. So it means even a little thing like a day out somewhere You've actually got to say, right, I keep the two days before that free in my diary and the two days afterwards so I can recover <laughs> after after the day out. And here, Andy gives his advice to stroke survivors. The advice to a stroke survivor would be never give up. And as Louis Armstrong once said about the trumpet, what you put in is what you get out. In other words, if you keep working at your physiotherapy you might make improvements but if you stop working you won't so you have to remain positive and say well I'm going to keep working at this I, I, I spent months working day after day as often as I could on a treadmill to try and get my mobility back because the one the one thing I didn't want to end up was being in a wheelchair I left hospital in a wheelchair and I was determined not to get in that bloody wheelchair again we bought a treadmill which I couldn't afford and I spent as often as I could on that treadmill, just painstakingly trying to put one foot in front of the other and hanging onto the, the, the side rails. And I can now walk short distances with a stick and, and, and I'm not in a wheelchair. Luckily, uh, I'm determined. My wife calls me stubborn. I say, no, no, sweetheart, I'm determined. <laughs> it's focus. It's not stubbornness. It's focus. And, you know, to learn to play the drums to a professional standard, any musical instrument, you've got to put the hours in. You've, you've got, if you're a guitarist, you're going to end up with blisters and you're going to end up with, with, with calluses on your fingers. As a drummer, you're going to end up with blisters on your hands and your hands are going to bleed and all the rest of it. And, you, you know, luckily that kind of discipline for me paid off because for me it was like, right, okay, this is no different to learning the drums. I'm just going to have to put the work in and put the work in. So never give up. And what you put in is what you get out. And I think for for relatives, for family members, for, for, for loved ones of stroke survivors, it's about do as much research as you can into what stroke is, except that stroke is, is a brain injury. And that because our brains do everything for us, that means that your loved one could have physical issues. They could have emotional issues they could have mental issues they could have all three because our brains do everything so i 
as an example, for some reason now, I am claustrophobic beyond, this is why I had a meltdown in the MRI scanner, I'm claustrophobic beyond belief. No problem, pre-stroke. Happily go down dark. I went potholing, went caving, loved it. Just the idea of it now brings me out in a cold sweat. So it's it's about, as a loved one, it's about recognising that this experience, this stroke experience could affect the stroke survivor in all manner of different ways, physically, mentally, emotionally, and who knows what else. So it's about the relatives trying to understand what all that means. And I think also to not expect that this person is going to be back doing what they were doing in a few months time. It's, it's very long term for most people. Andy's stroke resulted in him needing a six-hour brain surgery and an intense therapy regime. He continues to make great progress and is currently working on composing an album that tells the story of his stroke. You can check out his work at brainattackmusic.com. Thanks for listening. Please do suggest stroke stories to anybody you think it might help. And if you have time, please rate and comment on the episodes you hear to help us spread the word. And if you are or you know a stroke survivor with a story to share, please contact us via Twitter or Instagram. Our DMs are always open. I'm Mark Goodyear. Thank you for listening. The Stroke Stories podcast was produced by Aidan Judd. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ the official ETF of the NCAA. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc.,